Hello, and welcome to the second episode of our new Policy Matters podcast series, continuing today with the topic of the global energy crisis. This time, though, we're focusing on the UK situation, a very English crisis. I'm Mike Petrock, and I'm delighted to say that I'm again joined today by Paul Butcher, our new Director of Public Policy. He's got a deep background in the energy sector, having worked in our energy and infrastructure team for nearly 20 years. Hi, Paul. Hi, Mike. Paul, before we get going today, could you do me a favour and summarise what the first episode covered for those who missed it? Sure. So our first episode looked at the global energy crisis as a whole, highlighting how the record natural gas and coal prices were flowing through to record electricity prices. And we discussed how industry and consumers have already been hit hard before the Northern Hemisphere enters winter. But we also covered what led to the crisis. And I argued that ultimately the underlying cause that allowed the crisis was a failure of global policymaking over many years to effectively manage the admittedly very challenging transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. This is also true of the UK, notwithstanding in relative terms its leader. Thanks, Paul. And with that in mind, I think it's the perfect opportunity to talk about the UK. We'll go into details in a moment, but why not start with your key takeaways? Sure. So in this episode, what I wanted to take a closer look at the UK perspective on the energy crisis and the impact it's having on potential implications. In particular, I wanted to look at the UK's unusually competitive energy supply market, given that 22 energy suppliers have gone bankrupt so far this year. Firstly, I want to look at the UK specific factors exacerbating the crisis. Our greater reliance on wind for generation, low levels of gas storage, and Brexit also actually plays a role. Then to look at the peculiarities of the UK's energy supply sector and the role of the default tariff cap and the supplier of last resort regime. How Ofgem, the energy regulator, has reacted so far and what they and or the UK government may do next, including some of the interesting recent geopolitical moves by the UK government. And when we get to that last section, I wanted you to take me back to the first big matter I worked on as a trainee in our energy department back in 2002, as I think that has some real lessons. That does sound intriguing, Paul, a journey into the mind of you as a trainee. But before we go back in time, let's kick things off with some stats to put things into context. What's been happening to the wholesale energy prices in the UK this year? Well, as with the rest of the world, the UK has seen record natural gas prices up about six times since October 2020, and electricity prices, with day-ahead prices reaching nearly seven times the strike price that was awarded at the latest round of contracts for differences auctions, which were used to encourage more UK low-carbon electricity generation. How does that compare globally? Well, I'm not going to go through all the global stats again today, but I'll just say that we are seeing record prices for natural gas and electricity pretty much around the whole world. And the UK has certainly not found itself insulated from that. Indeed, in some ways, we've been one of the harder hit jurisdictions. Okay, so this is a global crisis, but today we're just talking about the UK. Take me through some of the factors aggravating the UK situation. You mentioned wind or actually the lack of it uh, in your introduction. Yes, so we had very low wind speeds across Europe from April to June, the third worst quarter in 22 years for the North Sea, according to Orsted, 
uh, the world's largest offshore developer. But this led to a relatively greater impact on the UK than most of the rest of Europe because of the UK's much higher proportion of wind generation. So in the UK, um, it's about 24% um, is wind generated. And for the EU, 27 averages about 14%. Our North Sea oil and gas must surely have helped us with the natural gas situation, though. Well, it's certainly not hindered us, um, but our production is a long way down from its peak. And with only about half of our demand for gas met by our own production in 2019, and about 20% through LNG shipments alongside pipeline flows from Norway and the EU. So actually, the UK's marginal prices for natural gas, so in other words, the actual wholesale prices, are very much set by the international markets, which have spiked dramatically, as we know, um, due to the serious competition for, to secure supplies, particularly from Europe and Asia. Also, the UK has some of the lowest natural gas storage capacity in Europe, less than 1% of the EU's total. The historical reason for that, of course, is the UK's position as a producer. None of this sounds like we're not being hindered, though, Paul. Well, without the reserves, we would be even more dependent on imports at this critical time. But with the UK's fields maturing and its main storage facility at rough closing in 2017, and that actually represented 70% of our storage, the UK has been left with very little flexibility in a crisis like this. Okay, understood. Um, moving on as well, though, you, you mentioned Brexit in your opening comments. What's that got to do with the crisis? Well, this isn't a decisive factor by any means, but it has had an impact at the margins for electricity in particular. From the 1st of January 2021, with the end of the Brexit status quo transition period, the UK left the EU's internal energy market, which meant that electricity trading for the UK-EU interconnectors, excluding Northern Ireland, of course, which remains in the single electricity market with Ireland, were no longer subject to what's called market coupling. The market coupling uses a special algorithm to ensure coordinated day-ahead price setting and capacity allocation with interconnected capacity and the electricity sold together. So this ensured highly efficient allocation of electricity flows to whichever market had the greatest need. And without that system, it now requires market participants to buy interconnector transmission capacity for the day ahead as a first step, and then separately to purchase the electricity they wish to flow. So ultimately, what does that mean in practice? This means that the UK-EU electricity trading is less optimised than before. And so, for example, that the UK can't rely on as efficient a response from the interconnectors when the UK's offshore generators suffer low winds. However, the larger impact in terms of interconnectors in 2021 has been the fire on the 15th of September at the IFA1 interconnector with France, which caused a full outage until late October and a reduced capacity until late 2022, and only full capacity expected back in late 2023. So I've got to ask, um, is there any good news? Well, for interconnectors, there is one bit of good news, which is the IFA2 interconnector with one gigawatt capacity between France and the UK went live on 22nd of January this year. 
Okay, so about UK energy suppliers then, um, you mentioned this was a very UK specific aspect of the crisis, with 21 of these uh, businesses going bankrupt so far this year. What is so special about the UK? So the UK's energy supply market, the re essentially the retail businesses that supply electricity and gas to business and domestic consumers, is one of the most liberalised in the world. So from 2011 to the start of 2021, the market share of the large legacy electricity and gas supply companies, then known as the big six, dropped from nearly 100% of market share to 70%, with a peak of 70 energy supply companies in 2018, down to only, well, <laughs> only 53 by the start of this mm -hmm. year. But then, of course, as we mentioned, a further 21 energy suppliers ceased trading with their customers transferred to alternative suppliers under the UK's supplier of last resort regime. Just to interject for a moment, if I may, Paul, I know on our Energy Notes blog we have a more detailed explainer, but my understanding from that, in a nutshell, is that the supplier of last resort regime enables Ofgem, which is, of course, the UK energy regulator. It enables Ofgem to direct another supplier to take over as a supplier of last resort for the customers of a failing supplier, if necessary, to ensure continuity of supply. That's correct, isn't it? That's right, Mike. Um, I just also note that one of the reasons that these failures has been the government's default tariff cap regime in place since the 1st of January 2019 under which the energy regulator Ofgem sets a cap, um, which, which is the, the default tariff cap, on the tariff levels that suppliers can charge for electricity and gas for a maximum of a six month period. And again, we have a more detailed explainer on our Energy Notes blog about that. For listeners, that can be found at hsfnotes.com forward slash energy. Thanks, Mike. In short, the default tariff cap is not meant to prevent wholesale costs being passed through or a reasonable profit. The purpose is to deal with what was considered the unfair result of the way suppliers were competing, which left a large proportion of consumers who did not frequently switch suppliers, often of course the most vulnerable, and they had to pay considerably more than those that did. But for these energy suppliers with limited balance sheets, and who had not put in place sufficient longer term contracts and or other hedging strategies, the cash flow crunch caused by the energy crisis has, of course, been fatal. Thanks, Paul. You also said you, you wanted me to take you back to the first big job you did as a trainee in our energy department back in 2002 um, when you were working for TXU. So what was that about and what lessons does it hold for us today? Yes, yeah, so back in 2002, I and a very big team were working literally round the clock to sell TXU Europe's retail supply business with its five and a half million customers for £1.3 billion before it became worthless due to the automatic customer transfer at that time. We managed to do this, um, but the government policy was again a key driver of the failure of the, of the business model that led to this. This time, it was the new electricity trading arrangements which caused heavy industry losses and ultimately put TXU Europe in administration. Basically, the reforms pushed wholesale prices much lower down to the marginal costs 
and so long-term contracts which were based on average costs became uneconomic in the context of the UK having a bit too much surplus generating capacity. Of course, there's exactly that surplus capacity that we could do with now, arguably, although I'll try to avoid uh, making too many TXU-inspired points here. But in contrast to the current situation, TXU's problems then stemmed from the fact that it did have long-term arrangements in place. The government's reforms had almost overnight made these arrangements massively loss-making. Now we're once again seeing the impact that government action and inaction can have on this highly regulated sector. This time the suppliers that are in most trouble are those that do not have sufficiently long-term arrangements and hedging strategies in order to smooth the recent price spikes. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, you also you said that you managed to sell TXU's supply business for 1.3 billion, which was essentially based on the value of it having five and a half million customers. Does that mean that it's quite a competition between suppliers to become suppliers of last resort and uh, to take over the failed suppliers' customers? That's right. It is, it is indeed usually the case that being a supplier of last resort is a much sought after role as it enables, enables the supplier of last resort to add the new customers. So prospective suppliers of last resort may offer to absorb much or all of the costs involved, even including things like customer credit balances, which they then have to pay, pay back to the customers. But at the current time, of course, with the energy crisis, and the default tariff cap, it means that prospective suppliers of last resort, aside from any other costs that there might be to being supplier of last resort, face losses on supplying energy to any new customers, except to the extent that they have long, longer term contracts in place and or other hedging strategies with sufficient volumes to cover those extra consumers, which of course is a rare situation indeed. OK, and, and you also mentioned that the energy regulator, Ofgem, were taking actions uh, to deal with the crisis. What are they? Can you can you summarise those for us? Sure. So on the 29th of October, Ofgem wrote to all energy suppliers, setting out some proposals. So for the supply of last resort mechanism, the Ofgem letter announced that it would shortly publish a letter setting out an expedited approach to making supplier of last resort cost reimbursements to assist with cash flow problems. And it set out steps it would take to increase the financial oversight of suppliers, including in relation to assessing suppliers' pricing and hedging strategies. That seems pretty clear, and it certainly sets out a, a strong sort of direction uh, to follow. But did they do anything else? Well, they also announced that there would be a con consultation on the default tariff cap, in November uh, this year, with the decision in February next year, in time for the new price cap period that comes in from 1st of April next year. But Ofgem's letter falls short of the substance and urgency called for by many of the smaller and more risk energy suppliers who argue that the current regulatory setup is not adequate for the current crisis and further support is required even for efficiently run companies. So for the, uh, the smaller and more, and, uh, more at risk energy suppliers that you refer to, what, what kind of things might they have wanted? Well, for example, Ofgem has to review the default energy cap at least every six months, which is what it's doing. 
But some at risk companies would argue that in the current situation, it would make sense to do the reviews more frequently, which there's nothing to stop Ofgem from doing. In terms of the supplier of last resort situation, some of the smaller suppliers would argue that Ofgem and or the government should assist with cash flow issues that suppliers of last resort face when waiting for cost reimbursement, particularly at this time, so as not to advantage the big supply businesses. And, and when I say that, I mean going even further than they've suggested in their letter. So that begs the question, are energy suppliers united in these criticisms? Not at all. Um, as, you, as you can imagine, um, those were broadly the kinds of criticisms that the smaller energy companies had. But of course, um, not, e not even all of them shared the same views. But on the other side of the argument, some of the larger and or less risk um, at risk suppliers have welcomed the approach being taken, which they see as reflecting that risky strategies are to blame for the extraordinary number of supply company failures rather than the energy crisis and or government action and inaction. So then, with, uh, with winter fast approaching, um, what's the situation in the UK industry? So as with other jurisdictions around the world, UK industry has been increasingly concerned at the rising costs it, face, it faces. Many firms in energy intensive industries have already been rationing production, halting operations or making other adaptations. Famous examples include rail freight company, uh, which switched back to diesel engines from their new electric engines, and also the fertilizer company uh, that I mentioned in the first episode that halted production due to the gas price, which was then paid, uh, which was then paid um, by the UK government to keep going because the carbon dioxide byproduct that it produced was so central, it turned out to uh, many people's surprise to multiple UK supply chains. As winter approaches, it's increasingly likely that large industrial energy users will actually be required to cease operating to protect priority end users, such as hospitals and consumers in exceptional circumstances in order to balance the UK's gas and electricity transmission systems. And what about consumers? Well, as I intimated before, UK consumers will not ultimately be shielded from the energy crisis by the default tariff cap. Although, of course, the government might find other ways to provide mitigations or slow down um, the price increases. Analysts are currently estimating increases to the default tariff cap from April 2022 could be over 30%. One of the reasons, of course, that the regulator might be wary about bringing forward the review of the default tariff cap that it brings forward that increase. So the, the must-ask question then is, what's next? So in the short term, aside from hoping for a mild winter, the UK government will be assessing if and to what extent it should take further steps to mitigate the impact on the most vulnerable consumers and also in relation to parts of industry. More proactively, there have been reports that LNG shipments from Qatar have been rerouted to the UK after the UK asked for help and that the UK and Qatar are exploring longer term security of supply arrangements. But I should say that these reports have been denied by the UK government and I've no special information about this, but I'm just um, going by what was reported in the Financial Times.
<laughs> Fair enough. Um, but can you tell me as well, uh, what about more long-term prospects? So longer term, as, as the Ofgem's letter also anticipates, the UK will need to look at the regulation of energy supply businesses and put things on a more stable footing, including looking at the approach to the default tariff cap, which Ofgem was at pains to state is, of course, a matter for the UK government. With its recent more robust support for new nuclear and the announcement of a new finance model to cut the costs of new nuclear, the government is also moving to fix the underlying reason that the UK and indeed many other countries around the world have been susceptible to this energy crisis, the need to give business the certainty to move ahead with the energy transition. Thanks, Paul. You mentioned in our previous episode which was on the global energy crisis, that in a few days we'd know if Russia had increased the supply of gas to Europe as it had promised. Has that now happened? Well, interestingly, on the day that the increases were hoped to start, they didn't start. But after that, um, on the 9th and 10th of November, it does seem that more gas has been flowing. But there have been mixed signals in the European energy market. First, they appeared to be going down and, and now they're back up again. So it's not completely clear that the market has full confidence at this stage. Thanks, Paul. It certainly does seem like it's a very English crisis. And I really thank you for your energy taking us through it all. If you've missed the first episode, you can hear it by searching for Herbert Smith Freehills on Spotify, on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog via hsfnotes.com forward slash policy matters. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.